0: Groundbreaking teamwork netted them and their news organizations a 2022 Pulitzer Prize for local journalism. But that doesn't mean they always work together seamlessly.
1: She definitely just hated interviewing with me in the beginning. Like, I think it was really obvious. We ended up coming up with like a symbol. Like if I start drawing circles on my notebook, like basically means like Madison, shut up.
0: Pulitzer judges say Madison Hopkins of the Better Government Association and Cecilia Reyes of the Chicago Tribune delivered a piercing examination of Chicago's long history of failed building and fire safety code enforcement, which lets scaflow landlords commit serious violations that resulted in dozens of deaths. I'm Sheila Solomon with Drivet360, and this is Chicago Media Talks, a show in which people in Chicago media talk about Chicago Media. We're recording this live on Twitter Spaces before turning it into a podcast. To create the show you're about to hear, we went live on Twitter Spaces June 13th, 2022, when I was joined by my friend and co-host, Rivet360 colleague and ChicagoPublicSquare.com publisher, Charlie Meyerson.
2: What was it like to win the Pulitzer? Madison?
1: Winning the Pulitzer was unreal. It was something I don't think either one of us expected by a long shot. And we I mean, I felt very, very proud of the work, but I-, I was really excited. I mean, obviously it's, it's such a huge accomplishment and it feels so great, but it was also nice that, you know, I had since left Chicago, started with a new job and I was able to come back and celebrate with our team at the BGA later with the Tribune and get to see everyone together. Cause there were so many different people that worked on this project together. So it felt great to be able to, you know, celebrate really all the hard work that went into it.
2: Cecilia, how about you?
3: it was unreal. It was an unreal experience. There were two names on the entry, but there were a lot of people who worked on the project, uh, from Armando Sanchez, Jonathan Berlin, people at the Better Government Association, and here at the Chicago Tribune. And the other thing, you know, that I kept thinking about was just how much more we wish the city would have actually paid attention to the project. Um, It was this incredible honor, but it was... One of the first places I went was it being tempered by, well, there's a lot of work still to be done.
0: Where'd the story idea come from and why partnership?
1: Story idea originally came from generally kind of uh, paying attention to what was going on in the community around us. And one thing that just really stuck in my mind was I'm sure a lot of people in Chicago remember that horrific little village fire in 2018 where 10 children died. There was a lot of news around the event when it first came out, a lot of promises from the Emanuel administration and elsewhere that there is going to be investigations into what happened, how this could have possibly occurred and i was not reporting on anything relevant to that but was just really curious and wanted to know and then nothing really happened you know weeks and months went by and we didn't hear anything else about it and in the meantime just because it had piqued my interest i started to kind of notice other fires, other similar incidents and eventually was curious about like hey is this a pattern and i pitched it to my editors they gave us i gave me the green light to get started on it and Once I started looking into it, it came really clear this was just like a mountain of work and was really an ambitious undertaking we were going to try and do here. We definitely wanted to partner. The BGA partners a lot with other newsrooms, and so this was not out of the ordinary, but we hadn't partnered with the Tribune in at least many decades at that point. And we just thought this was a very Tribune story, something they would get on board for, and so we reached out to them, and they luckily placed us with Cecilia, and we got
3: rolling from there. It was a really good match because at that point, you know, Madison had been looking into this and I was very interested in covering things having to do with housing. I was already in housing court, not for fire specifically, but for things like lack of heat. And so when this came about, it was a really good match, even though we, I got to say, we had never worked together before. We did realize down the line when we were working together that a photo I took at the Tribune Tower actually had Madison in the background (laughs) that she was working um, on other projects at that time. We didn't know each other. Um, It was just a really funny fate thing.
1: Yeah, it it was a picture of a sandwich she was taking and I just happened to be in the background carrying a bunch of paperwork.
0: Coming up, the methodology that went into Madison and Cecilia's reporting.
2: Want to hear the next episode of Chicago Media Talks Live? We love to take audience questions, so follow us on Twitter to get notified when we record the show and even join the conversation.
0: Madison and Cecilia, tell us how you decided how to split up the work.
1: By the time uh, Cecilia came on, I'd already been working on it for several months, but I was really sure that I wanted like a full partner on this. I didn't want somebody to come in and just fall into the work that I had already been doing. So in the beginning, um, spent a lot of time working with Cecilia, where she was kind of doing her own background research to figure out where I was at, and then following some of the newer threads that she came up with that I hadn't really thought of up until that point. And once we were on the same page, you know, this project was really just doing a really repetitive, monotonous process. Over and over and over again for every single fire. So it worked out pretty well for the prop purposes of like dividing up labor. Cause then we would just go down this list of fires and say, okay, this one's yours, this one's mine, this one's yours, this one's mine. Take the lead on all the research for that. You know, we'd uh, review all the records, make recommendations. And then later on, eventually we switch those to, you know, argue the other side as far as our fact check. And that helped us divvy things up at least in the early days.
3: Yeah. So from the very beginning, one of the benefits to there having been this legwork that Madison had worked on and then me coming in was that I could take the time to question some of the assumptions that we had made if one person had taken the lead on that uh, particular incident the other reporter would then start fresh, so to speak, and reanalyze, relook at the documents, reread everything to make sure the other hadn't missed something. We would write memos for each other um, at the end of a day, just to summarize the things that we had done. We would go back and forth on the right way to do things. Uh, we would certainly reach out to other people as well, um, other journalists and then people within the field to make sure that you know we were going down the right path. Um, but there was, there was a high degree of communication here. I think Madison said at some point that she had been on video chat with me, um, a lot longer than she has for her personal relationships. Um, and the pandemic also played a big role in how we were doing things because we started 2019, uh, pandemic hits, we're all at home.
2: Well, tell us about that. I mean, so you're in the middle of this massive ongoing investigation and all of a sudden everybody's locked down.
1: Yeah, that was uh, that was rough. I'll say We had really just kind of gotten started in earnest, like door knocking and finding sources right in the beginning of March of 2020 when all of this happened. And so I think, like a lot of reporters, like most reporters probably, just everything kind of got put on hold for a little bit there. Especially because Cecilia with the Tribune has a lot more breaking news and current event obligations than we do over at the BGA. And so she was working on some other stuff. I pivoted for a little while to work on some other stuff. And eventually, you know, when it came clear that this wasn't going away anytime soon, uh, we we got back to it and it was really, really weird. Like, so you said, when it comes to our actual day-to-day working, we were just on Zoom all day long with each other. When it comes to going out and trying to get people to speak with us, that was really hard uh, to manage in certain circumstances. It was a lot of just being very transparent with people. You know, we'd knock on doors and then back up a couple steps and tell them like, hey, this is where we're at. This would be way before vaccines were available for us. We had one source that we met with a bunch of times in a park where we would have like, we had like a mobile interview set up in the back of my car with like camping chairs.
3: Mm-hmm. And
1: uh, yeah, we really just had to kind of keep changing things as to how people were comfortable and as the pandemic unfolded.
3: Yeah, I think the other slight hiccup to this is that obviously there were a lot of government agencies that were overwhelmed um, with having to respond to the pandemic. And so we were... You know, trying to get information and trying to get to the bottom of these incidents. But we also had to keep in mind that, you know, there were functions um, that needed to take precedence um, in this, you know, in this ongoing pandemic that we still have.
2: Did either of you catch COVID over the course of this reporting?
3: No, I did not.
1: No, we didn't. Some other members of our team did, though, And uh, but we were pretty lucky going through it. Um, I ended up getting it afterwards, but not through this reporting. And as far as I know, none of our sources did, at least, like, during our interactions.
3: Yeah, I mean, I I only realized a couple of weeks back or so that one of the people that we kept coming back to again and again um, had never actually seen me without a mask. So that's a little strange to think about. Yeah.
1: Yeah, which is also a weird thing that I'm sure a, a lot of journalists get to. But it—it's a—you have to learn kind of new tactics to interview somebody while you're wearing a mask, right? Like you can't make those like nonverbal signs of like, "Yes, I'm listening to you." You have to do it all with your eyes or your hand gestures, and that can be really awkward. Like the subject matter we were dealing with, which was very heavy and heart wrenching and hard to talk about. It was—it uh, was—it was very difficult.
3: Yeah, there was a lot of grace that. We had to give ourselves that people gave us when they when they talked with us.
0: How many fires and neighborhoods were you reporting on?
1: I think we looked at total about 170 fires. And those span, I mean, all over neighborhoods over the city, there wasn't even necessarily a super concentrated area. Um, But then based off of the criteria that we were using to make sure we were like defining our universe as strictly as possible, you know, we wanted Residential fires. The person had to die from a fire, which you'd be surprised how many circumstances where that doesn't actually happen that way. Um, I think we ended up including in our analysis 140 fires. Would have to double check that number, but that sounds right.
2: You know, this is a, a story about wonderful cooperation between two talented journalists and two dedicated and respected news organizations. But you know what everybody really wants to know is: were there ever moments when? you two or your organizations were at odds where, where, you know, there were some issues that you had to work out. And can you tell us about those please?
1: Ooh, uh, sure. I mean, I, I think anybody who's done journalism collaboration or a partnership, especially between two newsrooms knows that it's not always, it's usually not the smooth sailing that it appears to be from the outside, right? Like you have a lot of cooks in the kitchen in this type of scenario. Um, we have, like I said, a lot of editors who had previously worked together and that has pros and cons, I think one of the most difficult things that I always think about this project is just the writing process was very lengthy. Um, I counted it up, and I think Cecilia and I turned in one point like 19 different versions of the first draft. And I mean, like (laughs) full first different versions, like Google Docs kicked us out because we had made too many edits at a certain point. (laughs) And that was um, quite the process of just like slowly but surely getting on the same page of what everybody wanted out of that.
3: Yes. like the, the answer is yes. There, there were bumps in the road. Um, the thing that does help and did help me, at least, was to know that everybody was ultimately trying to pull in the same direction. One of the things that Madison and I had to work on a lot was mashing together how we both did journalism, um, which, you know, similar, but also different um, in terms of organization how we'd like to interview people um like i mentioned at the beginning we hadn't worked together before um and so we we had some of those we had some of those Hard conversations. <laughs> I was just explaining. I was teasing
1: Cecilia about this because she definitely just hated interviewing with me in the beginning. Like, I think it was really obvious. And to be fair, like I'm a very like bold and China shop type of interviewer. Like I cut people off. I ask them, "Is this what you mean?" and get a little aggressive. And Cecilia is very much more of the take of let's sit back, let's be quiet, let's let them talk. Which. To be fair, it was 100% what this situation called for. After our first interview, I remember her kind of casually suggesting, you know, asking for advice on how to interview with partners. And we ended up coming up with like a symbol, like she would sit in front of me during the interviews. And she would say, if I start drawing circles on my notebook, like basically means like Madison, shut up, like let the person keep talking. And just little things like that we ended up figuring out.
3: I mean, yeah, this was very early on. I think I think we 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 got it down pretty well. Um, I also gotta say that some of those specifics. So I don't know how I had gotten this far with just having basically one big text file keeping track of like the little tidbits that I had found. Like you know, I could I could still go back to them and like know where I had found them and fact check and all of that. But I was basically working off of a single text edit file.
1: Yeah. Her organizational structure <laughs> totally stressed me out. Like I was just alarmed <laughs> it because I'm like a very like
3: you right. know
1: retentive organized person. Like I have like spreadsheets of what spreadsheets I have and I just needed that. But we take it on the same page. And I think think that helps a lot. I think organization is one of the most like underrated
0: skills
1: in investigative journalism.
0: Highly agree. So is anything changing in Chicago's policy since the series was published?
1: You know, not much. And that is what I think what Cecilia was kind of talking about in the beginning, a disappointing aspect of this. We had had a pretty long closeout process with the city. We knew that we really wanted to give them plenty of time to look over all of our findings. And we ended up sending and talking about information of every single you know case that we could just develop that we said the city had early warning signs that there was a fire safety problem. So that probably took about two, three months. So the city was very well aware of what our findings were in advance. So prior to publication, the Life administration did enact two different changes that were related to renter safety, one to basically put problem landlords on a list that would increase their enforcement marginally, and another one that would require higher tech and longer lasting smoke detectors in the city. And while those are both steps that we're happy they took, um, they don't really nearly go far enough to address the overall issue. And right after we published, we, you know, we're really pressing, pressing the Lightfoot administration, Alderman for, you know, what sort of reaction, what sort of response are we going to see to these really systematic problems, you know, issues with every step of the way of the building code enforcement process. And she kind of, you know, brushed a lot of it off saying, oh, most of your findings happened under the previous administration, basically saying old news, you know, even though we knew very well, it was not old news. It was continuing then. It's continuing today. And... So we're still hoping to see some change there, some sort of impact, but so far,
3: not a whole lot. We we didn't actually have a conversation with anybody at the Department of Law. We tried. We right. certainly tried. Um, it would be great to have fixed some of the easier issues that we found. Things having to do with long response times to complaints, not treating them in the same way, even though they were the same type of Again, basic fire safety violation.
1: Right. And that what she's saying, like there's a lot of really basic stuff that we wish would have happened. Like the conversation with the city, yeah, would have been great. The fact that there's huge aspects of the building code enforcement program that's handled through the Department of Law. There are other areas that just like wouldn't even acknowledge some of these issues was really disappointing, and really shocking. And uh, I, I wasn't expecting that.
0: So what can regular old citizens do? One of the, one of
3: the things that we did tell people about, um, we've had this question come up, um, to document, um, and codify the issues that they're having right now, the main way that the city of Chicago finds a problem with housing has to do with complaints like tenants or other people filing complaints, which it's its own, uh, Way of handling things that could be improved, um, but if uh, if you're having an issue as a as a tenant or even you know a homeowner, documenting that through a complaint, trying to get it verified by an inspector, essentially getting the process to start. But one thing that I would encourage people to do as well is to have some sort of additional. Um, advocate source. Uh, Like, for example, in one of the follows that Madison and I did, we talked to people in Washington, D.C. and saw how they did things. They have something called the Office of the Tenant Advocate um, or something like it uh, within their city structure. And that function right now in Chicago is being filled by nonprofits. So it's completely outsourced. Or not completely, but it's outsourced for the for the most part. I think if you're a tenant in Chicago, some of those functions come from those nonprofits, but it would be great, you know, if if the city were the ones taking this on.
1: For the most part, you know, if you are a tenant and there is an obvious hazard in your apartment. Don't let all these findings, you know, dissuade you from still filing the paperwork and doing the right steps. Because ultimately, like that does work in some circumstances. It might work for you, and it's really important to just have that documentation, even if it doesn't end up panning out. And yeah, working with um, advocate groups can 100 percent speed things along or at least help clarify what you need to do. And then on top of that, you know, if there's a, if there's a really serious issue and you're not getting the help that you need you know, uh, if you can swing it, you take it into your own hands because there's some really basic fire safety things that I would hate to see somebody not have because we're waiting on the bureaucracy. For example, just smoke detectors. Uh, one of the, I think just the, not really related to our findings, but just related to fire safety, one of the most shocking uh, things we learned throughout this is that 30 years ago, there was, uh, when a fire started, there was uh, roughly like a half an hour of time period before the house would reach a point to where essentially life was no longer sustainable, to where it got so hot where things, everything would catch fire and there'd be such heavy smoke. Nowadays, there's two to three minutes of time before that happens. So you don't have time to go look for the documents. You don't have time to do anything like that. Um, You have time to get everything that's living and get out sometimes. And that usually only happens with a smoke detector.
2: Because we have, I'm sure, a number of aspiring Pulitzer Prize winners in the audience, uh, I think we owe it to them to ask you, two reporters, uh, how you got where you are in journalism. Cecilia?
3: I had a very roundabout way to investigative news, um, accountability, reporting. I actually majored in computer science in undergrad. Um, I didn't do journalism school basically, I was just trying to um, do something that I thought, you know, would make me more hireable. (laughs) I knew that I wanted to work in news. And I I knew that I wanted to write and I knew that I wanted to um, talk to people. And so from that point, um, it was just a matter of how to get people to pay me to do that. Um, I did computer science. I, I do like computer science, even though I don't um, I don't really use that much of it, to be honest. I mean, we're talking software engineering. Um, I did. Um, I did do a lot of internships um, when I was an undergrad. I was at the Boston Globe. Um, I was at the New York Daily News. Um, I came to Chicago um, after I did a fellowship at ProPublica. So I had actually, I had done my fair share of. Uh, working at other places, and I think I, I was at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I think having seen how those places worked was very helpful. Um, when I when I joined the Tribune and when I came to Chicago, I knew that I wanted to stay here for a long time. Um, I wanted to, as people say, put put my head down. Like I didn't want to um, jump from one place to the next, um, and I wanted to forge connections and. Like we said at the beginning, kind of do something that would be good uh, for for people who live here. Um, and my time at the Tribune, in my time at the Tribune, I had been on the graphics desk um, before I made the jump to investigative, um, to the investigative team. I think it takes um, takes a lot of persistence, um, but it also takes a lot of following what is interesting to you. Um, I knew what I wanted to do in undergrad, um, and there was a roundabout way of getting to it, um, but I never lost sight of that. Um, And while being um, in Chicago, I also didn't lose sight of some of the things that I wanted to be working on. Um, I think when you're starting out, it's easy to become... um, Disappointed or disillusioned by some of the things that you are able to work on. Um, there may not be, you know, the, the bigger things that you know you're capable of or you want to do. Um, but I think I had a very, I had a long-term view of it, um, <laughs> I guess, is is a summary to that advice.
2: Madison, where'd you get your start?
3: Sure. So uh,
1: a bit more direct path. I. Was did undergrad in journalism, and I was at the student newspaper. Then I came out to Chicago to go to grad school in journalism at Northwestern. And while I was there, had I, I kind of knew I wanted to do investigative work from the get-go. Uh, honestly, the breaking news environment just really stresses me out, and I don't feel like it's really particularly where like my skill set is most useful, or, like where I can be most useful. He I, like I said I'm really organized type of person that likes to find patterns and things, and so I really... Idolized these larger investigative projects. I, I would read, read around those times when I was at school, like, you know, one that I always think about was um, I think it was revealed at like rape in the fields and rape in the night shift, all about, um, you know, undocumented workers who were faced with all sorts of abuse and didn't have any sort of recourse to deal with it or to help them. And I liked looking at that type of thing where it was like a bunch of disparate incidents that they were able to find the patterns and put in the time and find the, Uh, larger conclusions about it. I knew I wanted to do that type of work. So I, you know, was really lucky to get started at the BGA right outside of school, getting to do that project-based work right away. And so as moving through the years, you know, we do sometimes a bigger project one a year, sometimes a couple in a smaller in one year. And I was always just trying to look at what can I do differently with the next one? How can I make it bigger and better? How can I, what can actually cause some sort of impact? You know, what did I mess up in the last one? Um, What's going to actually matter to people? What's going to make somebody like one of my friends want to read it, Uh, somebody my age, and always wanting to just see what I could do that wasn't going to just parrot a previous project I had done with a different subject matter. And so so I was really excited to finally get started with fires because it was really my first time to get that opportunity to do what I was talking about before with like really looking at a pattern of issues and seeing how that fits together in a larger
0: way, that makes sense. What kind of stories are you each working on now?
1: I'm working on, I have a beat for the first time my whole career, actually, on healthcare accountability down in Kansas City, which actually I was a little nervous about going over to a beat. i've loved having the freedom just kind of do wherever the story takes me but um luckily and unluckily i guess because of covid everything is healthcare so it's actually been really easy to do um, and easy to find lots of different stories that have met my interest lately i've been doing stories on how coronavirus relief funding has been spent kind of tracking that through open records requests and i'm working on some larger series of stories about disability service providers out in um, the Kansas and Missouri areas, which I found to be really, really interesting just because there's huge swaths down there without any sort of media coverage. And there's a lot of stories to be told and a lot of things to be looked at and held accountable for. So I've enjoyed that so far.
3: And I'm still very much set on the um, housing housing as a beat. Uh, There's a lot, either housing quality, Um, or access to affordable housing and a little bit of the issues that were brought into greater relief by the pandemic still having to do with housing.
2: Charlie, what are your closing thoughts? Well, boy, Sheila, you know, I remember a time at the Tribune when Sheila and I both worked there uh, when (laughs) if it wasn't conceived and executed by the Tribune. It was not news at the Tribune. But uh, I have to say, as an outsider looking in now, I love seeing the Trib and other journalism organizations, including, of course, in this case, the Better Government Association, working together. I think they're more powerful together and, and seeing those efforts rewarded with a Pulitzer. Your closing thought, Sheila.
0: Charlie, you're right about that. In many of our Chicago newsrooms, there are far fewer journalists than in the years when you and I were in that newsroom and lots of news organizations are now teaming up. This Pulitzer Prize is a first for the BGA and perhaps collaborations will result in more shared journalism awards in
2: the community. Cecilia, your closing thoughts.
3: I do think this was a great collaboration. I think there is um, a lot to be gained from local local reporting um both you know on a professional level in terms of fulfillment and then in terms of having something um having something happen that is positive for for people around you i think there's something very special in that um and it's i mean it's a privilege to be able to do this type of work um and i can't imagine doing something else
0: closing thoughts from you madison
1: this collaboration, as we kind of touched on it, you know, it wasn't always easy at times. And beyond the normal things that you'd go through with teamwork, there was COVID thrown in there. There was all the normal struggles that local newsrooms were facing financially. And there was a lot going on. And so it is very cool to kind of be able to take a step back and look at it holistically and think, wow, we went through all of that. And, you know, and this is what came out of it. And although we're still, obviously, you know, the impact side of things, hoping for a lot more, having this recognition is so uh meaningful and I'm, I'm just so grateful that this team was able to get that and i know whenever your reporter and you you know the lead reporter is working on investigative project because there's so many other people behind the scenes that don't really get the proper credit that is due and i i, I hope that this brings some you know excitement for them as well
0: Our guests on this edition of Chicago Media Talks have been investigative reporters Madison Hopkins and Cecilia Reyes, who since our recording live on Twitter Spaces June 13, 2022, has left the Chicago Tribune to join Insider. You can reach Cecilia on the web at reporter.creyes at gmail.com and Madison at mjhopkins23 at gmail.com. You can find me at Sheila at rivet360.com and join Charlie Meyerson for a roundup of the news weekday mornings at chicagopublicsquare.com.